audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. Thanks for having us this morning. We are very excited to be here worshiping with you to get the opportunity Uh, To preach the word here is a joy. Uh, You should know before I preach that um, when God had first called our family uh, to church planting, we knew that we had a vision for ministry. Uh, We knew the vehicle for that vision to come to fruition was church planting. Um, But what we didn't know was the venue that God would have us plant a church. And as we prayed and as we pursued God, doors began to open up with this EFCA Texas Oklahoma district and we continued to pray and pursue God and I got to meet some of the people committed to planting churches and seeing a vision for not just a single church being planted here and there but clusters of churches being planted and working together to plant throughout the region it was through friendship and and talking with Justin that was a, a big part of the story of why we wanted to come to this area but because we wanted to be a part of churches planting churches. So although we're at the front end of the work of planting a church, it is so exciting to lock arms, to be shoulder to shoulder in ministry with churches planting churches. So it is sincerely an honor to be with you. But you didn't You didn't come this morning to hear me talk about that. You didn't come to hear Justin and I say nice things about each other, hopefully. We came to get into the Word of God, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn in and turn on your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. While you're turning there, I want to give you an image. It's a graphic image, so I'm glad you're all seated, Uh, but an image to help understand where this text that Justin just read for us is taking us. Uh, So over the last 17 years, I've had four surgeries on my right wrist. And the last surgery was uh, last March, so almost a year ago, where in a last-ditch effort for the doctor to try to stop the chronic pain that I've been dealing with from an old injury, uh, they removed three bones from my wrist. And while I was recovering at home from that surgery, I had the bright idea, maybe the painkiller-induced idea, um, I should watch the surgery Uh, just to see what just happened to me. Uh, So I took America's Best Teacher, YouTube, and I I plugged in the words proximal row carpectomy. Guess what? Bingo. Found it. So moments, not minutes, moments into watching this horrible video of what just happened to me a few days earlier, I got, I got sick, and it wasn't just the, the sick of uh, I'm squeamish and I'm seeing gross things. I think there was a repulsion from deep down inside of me um, because parts of the body were, were quite literally being yanked out, and it just seemed so unnatural. What does that have to do with us? Let me, let me paint another picture for you. From at least back into the 1950s through the 1990s and the early 2000s, 
Uh, there was a very prominent evangelistic method that was used throughout the United States, and it was wildly effective. And it hinged on the idea of a personal relationship with God. I praise God for the movements uh, that, that used such an evangelistic method because I and my wife each trusted Christ on our respective college campuses through that methodology. But in the, in the drumbeat of all you need is a personal relationship with God, we got an incomplete picture of what the gospel does for us. See, when we only see a personal relationship with God, we miss the fact that God has also invited us into a family, his church, and God has invited us into a mission to the world to make disciples. But if we're preoccupied with personal relationship, we have a disjointed church that renders itself impotent in God's mission to the world. See, the gospel is not less than a personal relationship with God, but I believe the scriptures tell us that it is more because it includes being saved into a family and being saved into a mission for the glory of God and for the good of others. And when we get to this place in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, we see the apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth because of division and the subsequent strife that happens when a church is disjointed. Like bones being removed from a body, Paul is distraught over the fractures in the church because it wasn't meant to be that way. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he even prayed for unity in the body. This was central to the message of Christianity. Listen to Jesus' words in John 17 as he prays to the Heavenly Father. Jesus himself said, Holy Father, protect them so that they may be one as we are one. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Those generations of people that are going to trust Christ through the early church. That's us that Jesus is praying for in this prayer. He prays that they would be unified. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. And here we see Jesus' vision for the church. His prayer for the church was one of unity. It was one of love. And when unified, we're told that the believers are able to bear witness to the true identity of Jesus, the one whom God has sent to save the world. But only a couple of decades after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, we see divisiveness causing the bottom to come out from under the church. The church is losing the power that we had seen through the book of Acts as the gospel was going forward because Christians were being divided, self-centered. Paul's letter is meant to restore Jesus' vision of unity and love in the church and to reignite Jesus' mission in the world. And in the middle of this letter to the church in Corinth, we see three chapters devoted to the spiritual gifts why does that happen? Well, the church had exchanged its Christ-centered view of these spiritual gifts that God so generously gave his church, empowering them to live missionally, for a self-centered view that's causing broken relationships between people and rendering God's church powerless. Paul is urging the church to repent. They've departed from the truth, they're fragmented, 
He's correcting their error. He's using the spiritual gifts to demonstrate to them how they must turn back to Christ-centeredness. You see, even for us today, when it comes to these gifts that God gives, we tend to think of ourselves first. And what does it mean for me versus what does this mean about God? May we not forget that the Bible is a book for us, but it is not primarily about us. It is a book about God. So when we come to this place emphasizing the spiritual gifts, we need to first think, what does this mean about God? Because the spiritual gifts are about God, not us. They remind us that God is wise. The spiritual gifts remind us that we were created in God's image. And the spiritual gifts remind us that God is a generous giver. And because he has given us these gifts, we need to steward them for his glory. So first and foremost, we see God's wisdom is our foundation when we see the spiritual gifts. Let me reread the first few verses of this passage. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts we treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. God's wisdom is our foundation. Uh, you see in Paul's language here, there was a sense of superiority and inferiority that was plaguing the early church. It was almost as if they had used these gifts to develop a hierarchy or a caste system of who was more important, who was less important, who was an insider, who was an outsider. The individual's identity was undermining their corporate identity as the church, the people that were supposed to represent the body of Christ under Jesus' headship. See, the risen Christ provides for his body's health, and these spiritual gifts are given to the church to that end. These gifts are not given for personal and individual glorification. They're to be used to edify or to build up the church that God has created through the blood of Christ. There is a diversity of gifts, but there is always a common goal and a common good to which they work. And the Spirit is the key to unity in the body. The Holy Spirit is the difference between the church functioning as a collection of instruments, haphazardly playing to their own tune, and an orchestra playing a harmonious symphony under the direction of an extraordinary conductor. So we should be calling on God, pleading with him for his spirit, working towards unity in order that we can be empowered as Christ's body on mission. See, the Corinthians had all the gifts, we're told, in chapter 1. Paul says they are not lacking in any spiritual gift. However, there's a lack of wisdom, which makes for a dysfunctional church. And Paul addresses the foolishness of the Corinthians puffing up and putting down of their very own brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Paul's reminding them that they don't have the authority or the power to make those assertions. And they're acting foolishly, which means without wisdom. So surely we want to avoid the error of the Corinthians. But I believe we're all susceptible to the same foolish behavior when we envy the gifts of talented teachers, singers, and musicians while disregarding many of the wonderful gifts that God has given generously that he's entrusted to the church for her health and well-being. 
Each and every one of us might struggle with various temptations to elevate certain spiritual gifts, the spotlight gifts, the ones that we see, the ones that we cherish, while we devalue the ones that happen behind closed doors. As though sermons and songs are more valuable to the church than prayer and administration and set up and tear down teams. Set up and tear down teams laughed at that. <laughs> Sometimes we get in the habit of watching a few people use their gifts like passive consumers ordering off the menu of Christianity. Deep down inside of us, I think some of us want a fast food church made our way right away. We want that instead of being active participants in the faith, following the map to maturity and multiplication and mission while we work together with the rest of the body of Christ. God did not want rogue Christians in his economy. He wanted one unified body. The Corinthian church has taken a self-centered approach to the gift. Self-centeredness always results in disunity because it puts the self first. Self-centeredness is misplaced worship because it puts us in the center of who's getting the glory instead of God. Self-centeredness always leads to disordered love because we've put ourselves before God and others. At its core, self-centeredness is sin. And Paul suggests that this church in their disjointed and self-absorbed ways are downright foolish when he says, on the contrary, the parts that seem weaker are indispensable. That should give you chills if you have any self-awareness. And it should not surprise us that God loves using weak things for his glory. After all, as we trek through the scriptures, God used an exiled murderer to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. God used a shepherd boy to slay a giant. God used a widowed foreigner in the bloodline of Christ. When Jesus called the disciples, he was calling other rabbis rejects to come and follow him. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he did it with a few meager fish and loaves. Sure, God uses prophets, priests, and kings for his glory on mission, but he also uses prostitutes, pagans, and kids to get his work done. And ultimately, God used a cross to bring salvation for all who believe. He does not work the way we think he should work. But oh, is it so much better. I believe God delights in finding something or someone weak and saying, watch what I can do with this one. Because there's nothing when he does that that mistakes who deserves the glory when God does something magnificent. And if we're all being honest with ourselves about the state of our hearts, if we're all being honest with ourselves about all the times we've failed and fallen, it is a miracle in and of itself that he has done anything with, in, or through us. See, the gospel is good news that God is strong while we are weak. Remember how Paul initiated chapter one when you read that several weeks or maybe months ago. Paul said to this fledgling church, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God delights in using weak things. And yet we have a propensity to worship the strong things that we think we can produce. See, my five-year-old son 
Uh, he, he has a habit of once in a while looking at me and saying, Dad, I'm stronger than you. And, and sometimes we've, we've corrected this. I won't tell you how, because I think this is being recorded. <laughs> sometimes uh, he would look at me and say, Dad, I'm the boss. And if, if you've ever seen the movie Boss Baby, I'm pretty sure he thinks that's a biography about him. <laughs> and as, as funny as that seems, do, do you see when we put down gifts and when we puff up gifts, the arrogance and the pride of saying, God, I could do it better than you. God, I'm, I'm smarter than you. I should have got the gifts that they got. Those gifts don't matter that much because the gifts I have matter. See, whether you might struggle with, with envy of other people's gifts or with the arrogance that your gifts are better than others, that's both rooted in pride, saying, I could do it better than God. And that always results in disunity and the glorification of self before the glorification of God. God's wisdom, prompted by the Holy Spirit, always leads us to be humble and other-centered with every gift we've received from God. We need to surrender our opinions of strong and weak and adopt God's wisdom as our foundation. Secondly, we see God's image is at our core. When we think about the spiritual gifts and what it means about God, we need to see that his image is at our core. Halfway through verse 24, we pick up, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. See, the Corinthian church's disjointedness caused Paul to point them back to the owner's manual, but Paul couldn't just tell the Corinthian church, start acting like the church, because at that point in history, they're still figuring out what it means to be the church. They're still trying to figure out what does it look like to be people that are citizens of a heavenly kingdom rather than selfish members of an earthly one. So Paul's words, but God has so composed the body beckons all the way back to God's creation of the body in Genesis chapter 1. See, God created the cosmos and everything that inhabit them. Listen to the words that God uses to talk about the creation of the body in Genesis 1. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is often referred to in, in theology as the imago Dei. The design of humanity is in the image and likeness of God, which makes human beings different from the rest of creation because we have the unique ability to, to relate to our creator. And the purpose of humanity is spelled out for us right at the beginning. We're made in God's image and likeness to reflect God to the world, to represent God in the world, and to multiply. I want you to remember that. God's purpose was instilled in us from the beginning. We are made in God's image and likeness to reflect God to the world, to represent God in the world, and to multiply, 
Reflecting God means showing the world what God is like. Representing God is to act in such a way that brings glory to God. And to multiply is to make more people, more image bearers who do the same. However, when we get to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, Paul's telling the Corinthian church, God has so composed the body, but he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the body of believers, the church under the headship of Jesus. God designed the church as a body. And what do you think the purpose of the church is then? The purpose of the church is to reflect God to the world, to represent God in the world, and to multiply. And while God was calling Adam and Eve to multiply through childbirth, God is calling the church to multiply image bearers through commissioning the church to make disciples, new believers who are born again by a new spiritual birth through faith in Jesus. And Paul is using this imagery to recalibrate the church so that Christians can live unified by the Spirit, understanding their identity and their purpose. The identity of the church is not an individual-driven identity. The identity of the church is a collection of people under the headship of Jesus on his mission. And church, we are in an individualized culture. So for us to not just believe this, but to act on this, is going to be like swimming upstream as we're told, you do you. We are called as a church to reflect, represent, and multiply for the glory of God and for the good of others. Drastically different message. Sacrificing our preferences for the good of the body is an essential for kingdom living. The hard work of unity we're promised will always advance the gospel. And I say the hard work of unity because Paul is explicitly clear that it is going to be a challenge at times. I'm reminded when I read this passage of a special friendship that our family developed when we lived in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, several years ago, we were a part of a church plant there, and we lived next door in a duplex to this family that at the time was a family of three. Uh, the mom and dad were Jason and Amber and their daughter. Uh, her name was Jay. We found out very early into that relationship that Jay had something called Prater-Willie syndrome, something I had never heard before, Prater-Willie syndrome. We called it PWS. And PWS uh, affected every dimension of Jason and Amber and Jay's lives. PWS is characterized um, by several things, developmental and cognitive delays, um, small in stature, low muscle tone, Often a lot of times there's difficulty with the spine aligning, so there's scoliosis. Uh, but the most distinguishable characteristic of PWS is insatiable hunger. The inability for the body to say, I am, I am satisfied with enough food. And this little girl was, was an infant at the time that we met her. Infants can't... can't can, communicate rationally so we got to live very literally next door sharing walls with this family and we realized early on that we wanted to do the work of being friends with them but if we were going to do that things were going to have to change because the implications for their lives were, were rampant they were all over the place 
life was hard for Jason and Amber and for Jay because they had to put boundaries on their lives that the vast majority of us never have to think about. Faith was hard for Jason and Amber because how on earth could a good and loving God let a child be born into the world with this genetic malady? And of course, church, if they were even interested in it, which they weren't, would be hard because it was just another day of the week that they were going to have to take all those boundaries that they create in life into the world and explain them to people who won't understand. But we saw the image of God in this family. We saw that God had made all three of them in their image. So we decided to do the hard work of friendship, which meant when we got together, we had to change our rhythms. We had to change the way we did life a little bit in order that we could grow the friendship. And I remember a couple of years into that vibrant friendship, Jason and Amber came to our house and they sat in our living room. And at this point, they had, they had taken some steps into a church family, they had taken some steps into a small group. Their faith was beginning to take root and grow. And I will never forget the day that they asked a genuine question in our living room. Is our daughter still made in the image of God? Because she's, she's literally missing parts of her DNA. And I, I grieved. Because I know they, they knew the answer that they wanted but a couple of years into our friendship, they wanted to ask us what our theology said about their daughter. And I had the joy of sharing with them through tears that beyond the shadow of a doubt, your daughter is made in the image of God. And by the way, we're all broken. Some people just have a little bit more challenge hiding it. We had the privilege of teaching them what it meant to be made in the image of God. But it was through the relationship that Jason and Amber and Jay taught us more about what it meant to be the church, doing the hard work of life together through our differences. And through that time, we got to, to cry with them several times as they struggled through life. We got to grieve with them as they walk through hardships, through hospital visits, through the added stress of locking doors and kitchens and counting every calorie to make sure they didn't make a mistake, through the repeated explaining why she can't have more food even though she still feels hungry, fighting for their daughter's rights in the school systems when it was easier for a principal to look at her like a diagnosis instead of an image bearer of the divine in manufacturing the patience and grace to tell people every day that their daughter's symptoms don't mean that she can't understand that you're talking about her while she's standing right there. We grieved together through the hard work of unity in our differences. Their hurts became our hurts. We were growing something that we didn't have apart from them. But we've also rejoiced together when she beat the odds, when, when some parents might tell their children no jumping in the crib. I remember celebrating together with Jay's parents when she was able to stand up and bounce on her own because that meant her muscle tone was developing. 
I remember we cheered when she boarded a school bus on her own to start kindergarten. And I know that every single time that we've been together and I've seen that sweet little girl clear her plate from the table without fighting to have more food, I worship God more because of their presence in my life because I know that she is still feeling hunger. Even recently, her mom sent us a picture of she and Jay cooking healthy meals together in the kitchen, a day that they didn't know would be possible several years ago. Again, we see God delights in working through weak things to show his power. We were able to share with them the Imago Day, but they were able to share with us so much about what it means to be the church. It's fun to celebrate as a body. It is fun at times to serve as a body, but being the church sometimes means suffering as a body. And it is sweet. It is sweet when people who have nothing in common other than Jesus decide to lay down their opinions and do the hard work of community together. It is sweet because that is a small picture of what Jesus did for us when he had nothing in common with us since he was righteous and we were not. Yet he laid down his life in order that we could go from from strangers to friends, from orphans to children, from lost to redeemed. In an age where the world is marked by division, may God's church be marked by unity and love. Church, are you willing to do the hard work of community with people who are different than you? Or are you tempted to surround yourself with people who look and act and sound like you and vote the same as you and have a lot of the same life preferences as you and really insulating yourself with more of you? Or do you long to to look around you and see the unity and diversity in the body of Christ? And if you're willing to do that and God says that's better, we will receive more joy, more fulfillment, more life, more love, because that's the way that God's designed us. God created image bearers to reflect him to the world, to represent him in the world, and to multiply, and a unified body of redeemed people should do that all the more than individuals. In this last section, we see something special. We see God's mission is our motivation. Beginning in verse 27, we see now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And Paul says, and I will show you still more, a still more excellent way. God's mission is our motivation. I understand that, that any time a list of spiritual gifts comes up in a setting like this, uh, people are going to want to hone in on exactly what are those gifts that are mentioned? How would you define them? And what does this church believe about them? And kudos to to Justin and the leaders for bringing in an outsider to preach this sermon. (laughs) 
Those are excellent questions, church. I'm glad you asked. You're a sharp group, and it has been a joy to be with you today. (laughs) But before we go down that path, I want to point out that Paul is not addressing those questions in this passage because before he gets there, and he will get there, he wants to address something even more important, and that's the purpose that exists behind those gifts. However, I know that the leaders here at Stone Oak want you all to understand the answers to your questions so that you can be a unified church, so that you can understand where you might be strong and where you might be weak, and to pray together as a church that that God would provide people to make up for any insufficiencies that you have and grow the strengths that he's already provided for you. I believe God wants that for your church so, so that you can multiply disciples, leaders, and even more churches. And that's all in alignment with God's glory and honor and praise and mission for us. For today, I'm going to point you to an upcoming spiritual gifts class where the church The elders, the leaders want you to devote your time and energy to understanding that better. Uh, The spiritual gifts class here at Stone Oak is going to be on February 4th and 11th. And Justin's made me aware that sign up for that is live. Um, It's it's open now, but I'd I'd rather you not turn on your cell phones right now. Um, But church, every single person here and the church collectively can be edified by your participation in a class like that helping you understand what the gifts are, what your gifts are, and how together they can be stewarded for the glory of God and for the good of this community and the world around us. But for now, for right now, it's important that we understand the collective purpose of the spiritual gifts because that's what Paul is trying to communicate when he gives this list and when he asks that that line of rhetorical questions. Do all have this? Do all have that? No, because our unified purpose is bigger than the sum of its parts. Theologian Boyd Hunt offers a useful definition of spiritual gifts. I think we'll put it up on the screen for you. Spiritual gifts, he says, are God empowering his people through the Holy Spirit for kingdom life and service, enabling them in attitude and action to live and minister in a manner which glorifies Christ. See, at the core, spiritual gifts are deeply missional in nature. Now, some gifts seem to be closely related to natural talent and Christian character, whereas others seem to be out of the ordinary. Some theologians spend a lot of work writing with confidence about the precise nature of each gift that's mentioned in the New Testament. And other theologians have a far more cautious approach, which tends to create a lot of confusion in the church. The fact is, the New Testament writers do not define their terms. Sorry. And why should they, though? Paul's already addressed that the church has every spiritual gift, that she is not lacking in any gift to reflect God to the world, to represent God into the world, and to multiply. And after all, these writers are writing in a pastoral mode to congregations, not to an academic audience. What we can see Paul is doing is encouraging them to seek the gifts that are helpful for building up the body. All of our goals should be seeking God, asking God for the gifts that are going to help us edify, build up the body of Christ. 
Paul's list is an opportunity for us to examine the gifts, to understand the gifts, to understand our place in the gifts, to understand our deficiencies as a church in the gifts, and to work doing that hard, perseverant labor toward unity in the body so that the church as a whole might better reflect the love of God through Jesus Christ to the world that we live in. In your church's pursuit of understanding the spiritual gifts, I want to point out that there is a major glaring problem with the church in the world in which we live. Churches in the United States are filled with what I'm going to call spiritually fat Christians. Somehow in our thinking, uh, we have determined that, that church is more about a destination where we come and learn versus a gathering of people who are reminded of our mission and our identity in Christ to be sent back out into the world. As Christians, much of the church in America is accustomed to eating but not exercising. Do you know that there are many if not most churches in America that function with something called the 2080 rule, churches will literally come up with strategic plans around 20% of the members doing 80% of the work of ministry. Wow. That signifies a disjointed body. One notable football coach Uh, Describe the sport of football by saying, football is 22 men in desperate need of exercise, surrounded by 70,000 people in, excuse me, 22 men in desperate need of rest, surrounded by 70,000 people in desperate need of exercise. And dear God, may that not represent the churches we live in. God, help us be a unified body, aware of our gifts, working toward unity for the glory of your name and for the good of others. Do you believe that God has provided so that this gift, this church is lacking in no gifts? Atrophy, envy, arrogance, misuse of gifts are all reasons uh, that the church is not as effective as it could be under spirit-led unity. May we not be that church. Instead, may we look to Jesus, who in his infinite wisdom took on a posture of humility and other-centeredness rather than one of strength and self-centeredness. May we look to Jesus whose body was broken in order that the church, the body of Christ, could be restored back to God. You see, Jesus didn't die on a bloody cross to gather for himself a loose collection of individuals. He died to restore a people in unity and love a people who would reflect Christ to the world, represent him in the world, and multiply. In church, Paul says, now you are the body of Christ. The same spirit that led Jesus to live righteously, that compelled him to die graciously, and empowered him to resurrect victoriously, now lives in us. What does that mean for us? The very first thing I believe we need to learn to do if we read these scriptures in a God-centered manner instead of a self-centered manner is confess and repent. And some people think that word confess is a dirty word. We thought thought the other ones did that. No, God's called us all to confess. Let me tell you what I mean. Confession doesn't kill sin, but it does drag it into the light and weaken it. 
if you allow God to examine your life, a prayer that he delights in answering, and if you see any dimensions of your life where there's apathy in using your spiritual gifts, where there's envy desiring others' gifts before yours, where there's arrogance that some people in the body of Christ don't matter as much of you, or a misuse of gifts, not using it for the glory of God and for the good of others, I encourage you to allow God to examine your heart, confess whatever he shows you, and repent, which is a turning away from your way and turning back to God's. If a church does that, the power begins to come back because there is now unity under the headship of Christ. But what does it practically mean for us to repent as a church? That's the second thing I hope you go from this place with. It's diet and exercise, right? If we're going to think of ourselves as a body of Christ as we've been instructed, we need to think about diet and exercise. The the elders have made it simple for you. The diet, the, the intake of the gospel, when you gather in worship services, when you gather in community groups, when you read the word on your own, that is your diet, that is your intake of the gospel. But we're also called to exercise our faith, which means going out there into the world in which we live, everywhere we live, work, and play, considering where God has ordered your life, reflecting God to the world, showing the world what God is like, representing him in the world, seeking justice, seeking righteousness, seeking his glory and honor and fame, and multiplying. May we be a church that believes that if we're reflecting God and representing God, that he will do the work of providing a harvest. And may, he use the gift, may we use the gifts that he's entrusted us with for his glory and the good of others. Church, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you've been so generous with us in that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die in order that we could live. You sent one righteous one to die for the unrighteous ones. God, we confess that we don't often rely on your wisdom. We rely on our own strengths. We envy the strengths of others. We don't exercise our gifts the way you've called us to. God, forgive us for that. Illuminate in each of our lives how we've done that in order that we can turn away from our own motivation to the missional motivation that you've given us in the gospel. God, thank you that you have invited us into a personal relationship with you. Thank you that you have invited us into your body, the church. Thank you that you have invited us into your mission. Lord, may we live as people devoted to you as we think about the ways that you've gifted us. And may we be stewards for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.